you are joining us in the middle of a sermon series we just started a couple of weeks ago on the book of Revelation. So uh, we're looking at Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. So please give your attention to the reading of God's word. The scripture reading for today comes from the book of Revelations chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we ask that uh, this morning you would come by the power of your Spirit and give us years to hear and a heart to understand um, the victory of Jesus, which you proclaim to us in your word. May we be comforted for those of us who deeply need that today. Others of us need to be challenged and awakened uh, from our kind of sleepy spiritual lives. But most of all, may we meet you, the living God, today. And uh, may our lives be transformed in such a way that it honors you. And in Christ's name we pray, amen. Uh, as I said, we're in, the, we're in the book of Revelation for a sermon series, and this book was written to the early church, probably the end of first century, during a very particularly dif- difficult time. There was a lot of persecution taking place, uh, especially under the reign of the emperor Domitian. And it was written to help these early Christian churches endure. And we also said Revelation is a kind of literature, an apocalyptic literature, and the word apocalypse just means an unveiling, meaning there are things that we don't always see, and here is Jesus explaining and showing the Apostle John these realities both in the present and in the future to help ourselves and see the world more fully. And we also said the thing you have to remember uh, about reading the book of Revelation is there's a whole lot of symbolism, and there's a lot of things that can kind of throw you off. And yet at the same time, here's the one thing I need you to focus on. The story of Revelation is this. The ending is this, that Jesus is victorious. He ultimately wins. And this is the message the risen Christ himself gives to the Apostle John in a vision, and he tells them to write it down and send it to the seven churches all across Asia Minor. And so think about that for a second. Here is the risen Christ speaking directly to the communities he's left behind, some of them who are in danger in one way or another of losing the character uh, as communities that are meant to reflect his love and reflect the good news of all that he's accomplished. They were lampstands who were in danger of losing their light. So this is one metaphor I do want us to spend a little bit of time on, and we'll get, it, get to it in a second. 
But think about all the things that Jesus wants to say to these churches. And in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Revelation, he speaks directly to them. And today we're going to look at the church at Smyrna. Okay? Now, what was happening in this city of Smyrna is the intense persecution of Christians was taking place. It was incredibly difficult to be a Christian. They were persecuted. They were being thrown in prison. They were being told they need to worship not Jesus, but Caesar. These are things that might feel very distant from us living here in Silicon Valley. We don't really think a lot about religious persecution that much, nor in the same way. But this is also a reality for many Christians around the world today. And if you reflect on this, there's a word of comfort, not just for those out there who are suffering, but also a word for us today. But let me give you a little idea of what sometimes is taking place in the world, and maybe you're not paying attention or just need to be reminded. But about a year and a half ago, there was an article in the New York Times, and it was about the persecution of Christians in India. And let me just read you a little bit about uh, what's taking place there. Indoor India. The Christians were mid-hymn when the mob kicked in the door. A swarm of men dressed in saffron poured inside. They jumped onto stage and shouted Hindu supremacist slogans. They punched pastors in the head. They threw women to the ground, sending terrified children scuttling under their chairs. They kept beating us, pulling out hairs, said Manish David, one of the pastors who was assaulted. They yelled, what are you doing here? What songs are you singing? What are you trying to do? The attack unfolded on the morning of January 26 at a church in the city of Indore. The police soon arrived, but the officers did not touch the aggressors. Instead, they arrested and jailed the pastors and other church elders who were still dizzy from getting punts in the head. The Christians were charged with breaking a newly enforced law that targets religious conversions, one that mirrors at least a dozen other measures across the country that had prompted a surge in mob violence against Indian Christians. Pastor David was not converting anyone, he said, but the organized assault against his church was propelled by a growing anti-Christian hysteria that is spreading across this vast nation, home to one of Asia's oldest and largest Christian communities with more than 30 million adherents. Anti-Christian vigilantes were sweeping through villages, storming churches, burning Christian literature, attacking schools, and assaulting worshipers. In many cases, the police and members of India's governing party are helping them. Government documents and dozens of interviews uh, revealed. In church after church, the very act of worship has become dangerous despite constitutional protections for freedom of religion. That was a year and a half ago. You know, for a church that experiences that kind of suffering, I think when they read these four verses in Revelation chapter 2, these are words of comfort. But here's the question I want us to think about. How do you remain faithful when you experience such opposition? Perhaps you're a new follower of Jesus And your whole family and friends think you've lost your mind, you know? How can you believe in this stuff? Why are you wasting your time? You should be studying, working on your career. Maybe they're just after your money, you know? Maybe you joined a cult. 
What do you do when you face such opposition? Perhaps you've been mocked, ostracized at school or at work for being a Christian. You know, I have a friend uh, who was referred to endearingly as Flanders in his investment office. And it's a reference to The Simpsons. He was respected because he was very successful and good at what he does, but nevertheless mocked. Perhaps you feel a crushing pressure to give up on your faith and you are just hanging on by a thread here today and Jesus has a word for you, okay? Be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. Uh, You know, there's a theme here that is taking place to the churches that Jesus is speaking to. You know, in in, uh, chapter 1, we said, here's Jesus among these seven golden lampstands standing in their midst, and they represent the seven churches. And if you were here last week, we saw Jesus speaking to the first church, which was Ephesus, and he said, you have abandoned your first love, and I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Lampstand. Okay, so what does that mean? What does it mean that he's removing them? What is the purpose? Why is this lampstand idea so important here and it represents these churches? And to understand what Jesus is saying to the church in Smyrna, we have to think about what does this lampstand actually represent? Because they represent the churches and we have to ask the question, what is the church meant to be? Because Jesus mentions lamp and a stand in his Sermon on the Mount. And he gives us a clue there. And listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 5. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You know, in a world where there was no man-made light, lampstands represented two things. It represented light and warmth. Think about it. In a world where when the sun went down, the day ended, the lamp and the lampstand was this powerful image of a light. It allowed you to continue life after the sun went down. But it was also a symbol of warmth because you found these in homes and people would gather around the lampstands. It drew and brought people in and there's this warmth about it. And what I always find interesting is Jesus didn't call his community to be a blinding light. You know, have you thought about that? It's a little, it's a little lamp. The kind, you know, the, not a blinding light, you know, the kind when you're having that oncoming car at night and they have their high beams on and it's so bright, it's blinding, and it actually keeps you from seeing, okay? He doesn't call his church to be that kind of community. He doesn't call these communities to be furnaces either, you know, where the heat is so strong you can't even get close, or if you do get close, you get burned and you're scarred. But he calls them and said, lampstands, a warmth and a light, a community that's welcoming, inviting, reflecting his character, You know, years ago, uh, there was a motel chain, Motel 6. They had an ad campaign with the line, we'll leave the light on for you. Do you guys remember that? 
It's an idea that is friendly, warm, safe, inviting. It kind of makes you want to stop in. You know, you're driving down the highway and you're like, I want to stop in a Motel 6, you know? And in some ways, okay, when Jesus describes the churches that he left behind and he says, you are to be a lampstand, I want you to think about that. That we are meant to be communities that are a light in a dark world. A community that embodies the gospel, which connects people to the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus himself. Because that's what a church is meant to be. And the embodiment and a witness to Jesus. So for this first century church in Smyrna, they are to be a light that invites the city to see and experience the gospel of Jesus. And here's the kicker. According to these verses, it will be seen through their suffering and persecution. The way they deal with their suffering and persecution will allow them to be a lampstand to that city. The way they handle being ill-treated, persecuted, slandered, imprisonment. The way you do this, Jesus says, you will be a witness for him. They are to be a light that is warmed to the city by the way they handle their suffering. I, it's, it's a hard passage to think about because in many ways, this church and these people, can you imagine how hard life has been for them as followers of Jesus? And they get these words that says, oh my gosh, the risen Christ actually has words for us. And what does he say to them? He doesn't tell them, hey, you know, all the people who oppose you, okay, I want, I'm going to come and smite them. He doesn't say that. He doesn't come and say, I'm going to take away your suffering. He actually said it's going to get worse, okay? He doesn't tell them to flee the city, to withdraw, circle the wagons, go down to Ephesus. It's only 35 miles away. Go into protection mode. He doesn't even give them those options. He doesn't even say, I'm going to do any of those things. He doesn't deliver them from suffering, but he says, I want you to continue to be a lampstand, a witness to the world of the hope that the gospel gives. Will you continue to be a community that is a light, that is warm? You need to say in Smyrna in order to achieve this and experience suffering. That is incredibly difficult. Okay, some of you are saying, all right, maybe I shouldn't be a Christian. That sounds really hard, okay? But, but here's the thing. You know, oftentimes we come to Christianity and think, as, when you become a Christian, everything should be easy. The Bible actually doesn't say that. The Bible actually doesn't say Jesus is going to come and fix every little thing in our lives and give us a happy life. Obviously, that was not the words to the church here in Smyrna. But here's what Jesus does say. He says, I know your tribulations. Did you hear that? I know your tribulations. This word tribulation, what does it mean? In the Greek, it's this word delipsis. And it means crushing pressure. Like being in an olive press 
being crushed down. And in the, word, in the New Testament, this word is never used to describe everyday frustrations, actually. This is not talking about the daily indignity someone might face or the feeling like, man, life is hard, nothing's working out for me, I'm discouraged, you know, I'm lonely, why don't I have, and you can fill in the blank there in whatever word you want, the Bible does address those frustrations and disappointments in life. Jesus cares about those things, but that is not what is addressed here. But this kind of suffering, this kind of tribulation, is always used in connection with the coming of the kingdom of God. The kind of crushing pressure described here is when the values of the kingdom of God come into direct conflict with the values of the kingdom of this world. It's when the powers of this world says you need to do one thing, but your faith and your knowledge of the gospel says, I can't do that. See? And what was taking place in Smyrna was it was a city that was incredibly loyal to Rome and to the imperial cult. And what was that? Basically, every Roman emperor, you know, they were a bit narcissistic, and all of them expected their subject to worship them. The phrase, Hail Caesar. The imperial cult was one in which you would go to a temple, bow down, throw incense, and worship and bless the emperor as your God. And in the city of Smyrna, it was the first city in Asia Minor in about 200 BC to build a temple to Dea Roma, the goddess Roma. They also built a temple for multiple Caesars. They were known, they were known for their loyalty, their patriotism to Rome. And this was incredibly valued. So for anyone who lived in Smyrna, their economic security, social status was dependent on participation in this Roman cult. And perhaps more than in any other city in Asia Minor, this was the case. In order to have a job, you had to be a part of this. In order to have a social life, and if you didn't want to be others socially and economically, you needed to participate in the Roman cult. They felt the crushing pressure to say, Caesar is Lord, not Jesus. Now, all of this is taking place. This is where their tribulation is coming from. People are saying stuff about them. Oh, these are dumb people. Don't associate with them. On top of that, they have trouble, it says, from the Jewish community in Smyrna. Because here's what was taking place here. For the first 50 years of the church or so, the church was seen just as a Jewish sect. So they were given the same rights and protections that Judaism had. Basically, they were not required to worship the emperor. They can honor him, but Jews were exempt from having to worship the emperor. So as long as Christians were seen as part of Judaism, they were afforded that same protection. But what began to happen, especially in Smyrna, was the Jews were saying, they are not part of us, okay? And they were getting sideways here. They were rejected because they said, we do not believe Messiah was a man who was 
crucified on the cross. They are not one of us. And they got so sideways, there were also things said about them that was apparently not true. We're not sure exactly what it is here, but a reference here to a synagogue of Satan. So I was kind of looking that up, trying to figure out what it is. And the best guess I have is that from John chapter 8, when Jesus is having an argument with the Jewish religious leaders of the day who would not believe in him, he finally said, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So if you try to understand what does it mean to be a synagogue of Satan, the whole point is Satan is the father of lies. And there are some lies hanging in place here, slanders about Christians, so they are persecuted. That's the best I could come up with trying to understand what this is. It means that the synagogue in Smyrna was throwing basically Christians under the bus. And the rejection led to an intensification of the persecution. And here's the temptation Christians in Smyrna were facing. They were saying, we're just victims. We're suffering. Does no one one care about us? Should we not be fighting back? What's the point of being a light? But here is Jesus who is showing up and saying to them something. He's saying to them, your witness is a costly one. I understand that. He says, you've experienced poverty. You've experienced slander, imprisonment, death. This was a group of people who understood what it meant to follow Jesus at a great cost. And yet, in the midst of it all, you know what they begin to hear from Jesus? He says, I know. He says, I know. I know what you're going through. And perhaps if you're in here this morning and you've been going through a tough situation, a tragedy, a heartbreak, that, may have, that phrase may have stuck out to you. The one who says he's the first and the last, the one who died and came to life, The one who says to you, I know, your trials and hurts don't go unnoticed by Jesus. He says, I'm there with you. But this I know runs much deeper than that. Because the I know of a crucified God means not just I see you, not just I'm there for you, but it means I've been there too. Jesus has experienced all of this affliction, poverty, slander, suffering, imprisonment, death. I mean, each of these things, Jesus says, I know I've been there too. I know how bitter it can be. And he is telling them, in this, I identify with you. This is a remarkable thing. And he's saying to them, do not be afraid. It can be deeply comforting to hear this from Jesus, especially when you're a victim. God himself knows what it's like to suffer loss. And as much as God is saying to us a word of comfort, he also says something very scandalous at the same time. 
even something that may feel offensive to us. Because the cross of Christ tells us not only that he identifies with us, but did you ever consider that it also means potentially atonement for those who have harmed you? It means atonement for the perpetrator, forgiveness, which is radical and unconditional. And these two things brought together in the church, that begins to shape the culture of this community. They knew they had a God who was crucified, who knew exactly what they were going through, who identified with them as victims, and yet this community would refuse to take vengeance, to make this all about their own self-pity, because it also meant forgiveness for their enemies. Because their Lord Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Jesus said, love your enemies. Forgive your enemies. And they had to kind of now think about what does it mean that we are people who are suffering deeply in this city? Do we run? Do we hide? No, Jesus says, you will suffer and endure to be a witness to the good news of what I'm doing. That is Jesus' word to this church. That's a hard word. You know, Rodney Sark is a sociologist and a historian argues in his book, The Rise of Christianity. He says uh, that martyrdom was one of the factors that made Christianity so compelling in the early church. Because here was a group of people who were so committed to truth, to the reality of something they had witnessed and seen, that they saw Jesus resurrected, and they were committed to this. And at the same time, they had a commitment to peace, humility, love. It was the bringing together of these two things held in tension to show the watching world what the gospel was all about. The suffering witness was so compelling. It was a light. It was warm. It was attractive. I mean, it wasn't a furnace that says, come near, we're going to burn you, you know? It wasn't like, here you go, light, truth, I'm going to blast it in your eyes, now you're blinded. No, no, no. It was warm. It was tender. It was attractive. The church in Smyrna was living this out. Imagine a group of people who are being so afflicted, yet having love for the place they live in, for those who are their perpetrators. That's the call to living a life of the gospel where inconvenience for the gospel actually is something you're willing to do. Let me ask you something. Are you willing to be inconvenienced for the gospel in this way? Would you be willing to experience financial hardship because of Christ? Are you willing to suffer for the gospel? To have your name slandered for the gospel? St. Paul writes to Timothy, all who desire to live godly lives will be persecuted. This is a piece of Christianity we don't like talking about often, but it's all over the New Testament. 
And Jesus says, my goodness, I need you to be a witness of this truth so people can see what I'm all about. You know, there are three uh, themes that run through the letter. We're going to continue to look at them as we go through this. First is this idea that Jesus says, I'm the resurrection. I'm the first and the last. I died and I came back. I'm going to give you the crown of life. And you're not going to be touched by the second death. We see that at the end of the passage today. He talks about faithfulness. You need to be faithful to the end. The one who conquers. And this last thing, the crown, if you're faithful, you're going to endure and you're going to get what? A crown of life. Resurrection, faithfulness, and crown. What is Jesus getting at here? What, are, what would this church be hearing as they read this letter? I think they're he- hearing this. Although all looks lost, Jesus is telling them, I am victorious. Do not fear. We know how this is going to end. And that takes us to be, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. The crown of life. If you're faithful, how do you get this life? How do you get life? You know, go back to this idea of getting life in the scriptures. You know what Jesus said? If you're going to save your life, you know what you have to do? He said you have to give it up. How do you win? He says the first will have to be last because the last will be first. There's this sense of giving up. And what is Jesus saying here? That if you do that, there's a crown of life, this thing called a Stephanos, which is a wreath or a garland given to someone who is victorious, like in a tournament or in a contest. You know, the Apostle Paul talks about this in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, the Stephanos of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. It is this crown of life, forget what, finishing the race. How do you win? How do you get this victory? Jesus is trying to tell the church, he's trying to tell us, the only way you can win is by having faith in the one who has already won. That Jesus already lived the sinless life that we can never live. That he already died the death that we already deserve but did not die because he conquered death on the cross and rose from the dead. He wins. He's victorious. And to the degree... We trust in him is the degree to which we win. To the extent which we are able to die to ourselves and live for him is the extent in which we win. And getting this in our bones as a church, as a community, as a Christian, allows us to be a light to the world which is warm, compelling, rooted in truth. You know, when you're around uh, Christians who've suffered deeply, everything else is stripped away, and for them, it's like, all right, do you really, really believe this? 
or do you not? You know, there's another story uh, from 2014. The New York Times profiled a 32-year-old man in Afghanistan named Yosef. And he briefly escaped civil war and he fled uh, Afghanistan to go to Germany where some of his siblings lived. And he had already kind of punted on his Muslim faith, but out of curiosity, he kind of went to a church that was in Farsi, his native language. And this is what he told the reporter. He said, you know, when I threw away my Islamic beliefs, I was living in a space of spiritual emptiness. And during that time, I was studying different religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, and Christianity. I was studying Islam as well. And I think I was impressed by the personality of Jesus himself. The fact that he came here to take all of our sins, that moved me. I admired his character and personality long before I was baptized. But what happened to him is after he was released from his refugee camp, he became a follower of Jesus and he got deported back to Afghanistan. And he started hiding from family members who had vowed to kill him for renouncing Islam. One of his brother-in-laws actually offered the New York Times reporter $20,000 to tell him where Yosef is hiding. He said, I'll give you $20,000 because I want to kill him. His wife and his child is also hiding in Pakistan. But for this man, the article says his faith remains unshaken. And it concludes this, this way. For Yosef, who has recently changed hiding places, the time passes slowly now with little company other than his Bible. He can hear the Muslim call to prayer, a reminder of danger's proximity and the paradox he lives now. When I threw away my convictions, it was like an imaginary prison. But now it's the other way around. My body is in prison, but my soul is free. You know, persecution is really a test. That's one of the things that you notice it says here, a test. A test does two things. A test proves whether you know something or not, right? But a test also improves. It purifies. It can strengthen. And Jesus is saying, for the church in Smyrna, the tests you face, will, sh will it show the world the beauty, the warmth, and the truth of Christianity by the way you deal with persecution, suffering, and hardship? Will it show people that you're connected to me? Or will you be people of truth, a blind and kind of light, I'm going to blast you with the truth, blind you with my high beams here kind of attitude? Or is it a community that's so intense, so hot, like you get close, you're going to get burned, you're going to get scarred. I don't know. Jesus is saying, I, want, I need you to be a lampstand, attractive and beautiful because it reflects who I am. And that is who the church is called to be here in this passage. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is God's word. Let's go to him in prayer. Father in heaven, this morning, um, 
We have heard difficult words that sometimes in our afflictions and our suffering and, uh, and even the persecution of faith, you allow those things to exist. You allow those things to take place. And yet you tell us you know. And you tell us not to be afraid. You tell us to endure. And this can all be done because of what you have promised us, which is we're not alone. And that you ultimately have a victory. I pray that you, you would renew our hearts and minds as a congregation in this truth today. Um, I pray that you would allow us to see the beauty of who you are so much more clearly. That we would grow in humility and love and to honor you and reflect to the world all that you have done and said. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.